If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base, a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. I do have a very special guest. Uh, so this is Dr. Uh, Karimet Alif. So uh, Dr. Alif, thank you so much for joining us on Everything is Personal. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Okay, um, let's see. Um, I got interested. I've always, as a kid, I was always interested in nature, understanding nature, and tended especially towards interest in chemistry and things on the molecular level. Uh, my mother died of metastatic breast cancer when I was 11 after being in and out of the hospital a lot for the last three years of her life. And so that guided my energies um, in a lot of different ways uh, towards wanting to do research in cancer. And so when I went to college uh, at Harvard, I ended up majoring in organic medicinal chemistry, looking at molecular mechanisms of cancer progression. And I carried that research forward when I went on to medical school at Stanford and I was in the cancer biology MD-PhD program um, and continues to look at molecular mechanisms of cancer progression referred to as tumor promotion. And other research that I did while I was at Stanford was also in clinical pharmacology. And again, it's kind of like looking at uh, medicine at a molecular level, looking at how different drug molecules interact within the individual and also interact with one another when a person is taking more than one drug as typically they are. And then as you expand that horizon a little bit, you start to realize that many of the foreign molecules that a human being is exposed to uh, interact in drug-like ways. And so, you know, some research that came out, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, 15 years ago now, that even, you know, things like coffee and tea and grapefruit juice and, uh, you know, fermented, other fermented foods and barbecued meats and things can affect, for example, liver metabolism of drugs. So there's a lot of complexity that goes in there um, beyond what may just be injected or taken as a pill, as a prescription. And then when you expand out to natural medicines uh, like cannabis and you have, 
you know, whether cannabis has upwards of 500 bioactive molecules, or if you look at something like psilocybin mushrooms that are not nearly as complex, and so they have less than, easily less than 100, uh, people usually just focus on psilocybin, but there are some other um, bioactives in there that can affect things like neurogenesis and all of that. But anyway, so all of those uh, different aspects of my training helped me to be able to have a fairly unique perspective scientifically and then also personally um, because of you know my mother's situation. And that's kind of my angle on medicine is very human-centered. Um, so um, I guess that's pretty much it. When, when cannabis came on board uh, in, I guess it's like, it's been about 10, 12 years now, maybe in Washington state where I am. And it was legal to start working in that uh, space, even though it's still questionable, you know, on the federal level and all that silliness and professionally, there's still issues, but the science is super compelling and fascinating. And um, I, my training in postgraduate training in medicine was in anesthesia and anesthesia is basically psychotropic medicine. And so a lot of the skills and experience um, that I had in training in anesthesia are directly applicable to understanding the complexity of cannabis and also understanding things like facilitating psilocybin patients or you know, giving people ketamine before an anesthesia and all that sort of thing. So anesthesia is really the only specialty in medicine that has such direct hands-on experience with uh, direct administration of psychotropics. Are you... you- Talk about uh, you know traditional medicine. Uh, we we uh, had conversation in the past where you know I I were I would refer to you know traditional medicine as uh, medi- medicine that comes in a pill that a doctor prescribes to you. But you have a sort of a different take on that. Maybe you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Well, so when I when I left Stanford, I was recruited away from Stanford to work for a, a biotech startup in Silicon Valley, and the model of that biotech startup was actually fairly unique was working in tropical rainforests with traditional healers uh, mm-hmm. used to be referred to as bioprospecting. And so traditions vary from culture to culture. And so when people refer to tr- traditional medicine, even say traditional Chinese medicine or traditional medicine like Ayurveda from India, um, then so the, the terminology can get a little bit confused. And so you know, traditional then medicine is more uh, uh, looking to the historical practices because um, that's typically what is connotated with the word tradition. And Western medicine, mainstream medicine, uh, medicine of pills and injections and vaccines and all of that is really more uh, forward-looking in the sense that the science keeps evolving and what was true two years ago may not be true five years from now. There isn't, you know, there isn't a long-standing tradition of, let's say, um, antibiotics. Antibiotics are only about 50 years old, mm-hmm. um, you know, 100 years old if you go back to the very crude forms of them. So that's that's not such a long tradition. Uh, so just that distinction there. So, but yes, I've had experience with the Traditional medicine practices, as well as I mentioned, the Ayurveda, right. there's Taoist healing that I studied in Thailand and different things. So to really have a full spectrum understanding of, of what's going on for people when it comes to healing, what the greatest opportunities are. Where did you grow up? <laughs> well, at least you're giving me credit for being a grown up. 
Um, <laughs> we, we never want to grow up. I'm a big kid too. So <laughs> I, let's say, let's say, where were you born and where were you raised? Is that a better way to phrase it? Yeah. Well, this, this is anecdotal, mind you. Right. Um, but yes, I was born in Detroit, Michigan and, and grew up there until I was 17 when I left for college. So, uh, but the, the evidence is inconclusive. All I have is a, is a birth certificate, which, you know, if I was to try and claim something like curing somebody of cancer and I had just one little certificate, one piece of data and saying, yes, I gave this patient cannabis and see her cancer went away. They all oh, that's anecdotal. So I consider my birth to be anecdotal. Because you weren't present? There was no evidence. <laughs> I was present, but I wasn't a trained observer at the time. And so skeptics would have to, you know, disagree with any. Well, th- there is a DNA test that exists. Uh, have you ever uh, thought about taking it or have you taken a DNA test? To see no, I haven't. I haven't taken it. Well, first, I have to be sure I have DNA. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, well, you know, that would be that would be. Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm going to you can track your ancestry and see. Yeah, yeah, assuming I have ancestors. But yes, I could. I, I have never taken a, a DNA yeah. test so far, but uh, it, it would be interesting to do so. I, I hear that you uh, work with people that have DNA hanging around all the time. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> I, I'm curious about Detroit, though. How is it growing up in Detroit? I, I'm not sure of uh, you know, how old you are, but, but I was, you know, Detroit at a certain time was a very turbulent place. Uh, I'm a you know, I'm a student of history, so I'm just kind of curious how it was going up in Detroit in the, uh, I, I don't know, late 60s, 70s, and that whole uh, era, and then uh, see if I, you can give me some insight on that. Well, to the extent that I know the history of Detroit, you'd have to go back at least 100 years for it to not be turbulent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was a bootlegging capital of of uh, the Midwestern United States in the twenties. And, um, you know, the car industry took off in the fifties and sixties, but then that led to a lot of labor disputes and a lot of criminal activity. Jimmy Hoffa probably would think that Detroit was a great place to live until it turned out to not be such a great place to live for him, um, for him. And, uh, in the seventies that you mentioned, Detroit was a murder capital. And, uh, and so it's, when you have that much big industry, you have that much income disparity, you have the usual, uh, social ills of the United States along multiple lines. There's a fairly large immigrant community there and people from every place like Armenia and Lebanon and, you know, Latin America, all over the place the largest, uh, uh, Arabic speaking population. At least, say the largest Lebanese population outside of Lebanon used to be in Detroit. It probably still is. So anyway, so there's there's lots of uh, potentials there for conflict. But uh, mm. you know, it's an American, big American city. There was always a lot of crime, and it just was the sort of thing where, uh, especially gun crime, you just you just had to be very aware and be very present with people, and and. Uh, a, a smart person wouldn't say things that they didn't really, really mean. And I don't mean like say joking and things that I'm talking with your friends, but I'm just saying, you know, if, if somebody makes you angry, like, you know, road rage kind of a thing, all this stuff, they talk about road rage, all these things they talk about now, this is like old school. It's like Detroit was, 
the beta phase testing for at school shootings. Both of my parents were uh, Detroit public school teachers and mm. they were shootings way back then. So, and road rage, uh, it, these things didn't even have a name. Um, and, and so in Detroit, you knew you don't honk at somebody. If somebody cuts you off or you don't talk at them or flip them off, flip them the bird or whatever the term is and all that, unless you're really ready to get down to business and get to know that person on a, you know, knuckle to knuckle level. Yeah. Um, otherwise you just, you just let it go. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> lucky it's knuckle knuckle because sometimes, you know, people pull out guns and everything. I'm, I'm from Philly. You so said I, boys and girls, so I'm kind of toning it down <laughs> to boys and girls. Even though these days teenagers got a lot more going on than I ever did. That is absolutely true. Yeah, no, I, I, I know, like Philly. I, I, you know, I, I, I was raised in Philly, so it's sort of one of those towns too. And I, I remember, like. Walking in LA, and you know, I live in LA now, and you kind of say hello to people as you're walking down the street, nod and hello, and people answer you back and never think anything of it. I went back to Philly and was hanging out with my friend. We went to a restaurant, ate, and it got late, and uh, we consumed some cannabis walking down the street, and there was a guy walking towards us, and I sort of nod my head in acknowledgement, say hello, and he paused. He's like, What's up? I was like, Oh, got it. I'm in Philly. You're not supposed to, <laughs> I forgot for a second, you're not supposed to engage with somebody like that because that's, uh, what's going on? You it, got some beef. You got... something completely different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Completely different. Yeah. yeah. So when you were, when you were 17, did you, uh, then, uh, move, uh, did you go to, uh, Harvard at that time or did you, yeah, that when you were 17. Okay. So you moved from Detroit, uh, to your university, basically. Yeah, yeah. Cambridge. Right. Okay. How was that? Yep. How was that transition for you? I'm just curious. It was bizarre. Yeah. It was bizarre because, you know, this is before the internet and all that sort of stuff. And so basically, as a kid, what you knew about was, you know, where you lived. And, you know, you can see other places on TV. So you can see California on a sitcom or you can see Texas in an old Western or something. And I could see Vietnam and the war, but you, I mean, it doesn't mean you really know anything about it. If you saw China, it was in some Charlie Chan movie. So you didn't, you know, I mean, even things like, I probably never saw fresh broccoli until I was in medical school. <laughs> it was always frozen. Everything was bird's eye frozen foods, you know? So so going to other places, going to Boston was a shock because I, like I was telling you in Detroit, people are very, uh, I guess I would say non-confrontational, um, except when they're meaning something really serious. And so people go out of their way to make sure, like somebody steps on your foot, they will apologize right away quickest way to get shot in Detroit is to step on somebody's shoes <laughs> and to not apologize. And, uh, and so Boston's very the opposite. You know, you've probably seen comedians like Bill Burr or whatever. They've got a very much sort of an in your face, they call them townies, that, that sort of thing. That's a big part of Boston culture. And in Detroit, those people, it just, at least half of them would be dead, <laughs> you know, cause one half would kill the other half. <laughs> it's just, it's just no way. So when I, when I got there, I remember getting there on a bus 
and and riding around and just first of all the accent was super like harsh like nails on a blackboard for my ears <laughs> and it's like hey there buddy what the hell are you doing get on the bus that takes all day just throw that on the ground you know and i was like oh in the world you know i start looking around it's like are people about to fight you know and uh and they use a lot of profanity and right. in you know in detroit people didn't use profanity unless it, like I said, people were ready to throw down. And so, you know, when people use the F word and all that kind of stuff, I was like, Oh, Oh, the thing is, you know, the rest of the world didn't learn about collateral damage until they created a term on CNN or whatever. And, you know, drive by shootings in LA and all that sort of thing. But we knew in Detroit that most people that are running around shooting that are criminals, you know, they didn't, they don't train at the target range. And once the gunshot fires, that bullet could end up in anybody's body. And then, you know, and, and so as soon as you hear their scream or some tires and blood, and somebody, everybody hits the deck. It's like roaches, you know, you turn on the light and the roaches scatter is because until you know what's going on, you don't want to just be standing around looking. And that's how you can tell people are from out of town. They're like, what was that? <laughs> still standing there. So anyway, so yeah, it was kind of like that. And so, um, but Boston is very different than, than Harvard. So Harvard inside of the campus, it's just, you know, it's just very kind of small town collegiate atmosphere and people from off campus would wander through because it's not like an enclosed campus. It's not like Stanford. Um, but you know, kind of like in England, there's a big class distinction, you know, and people of different classes sound differently. There's a right. distinct difference between people say from South Boston or the North end, the way their back Boston accent sounds. And then somebody who, you know, is a college student who's like, say not even from Boston or somebody who's from, what was it called? Uh, Knob Hill or Back Bay or whatever, the mm-hmm. more affluent areas of Boston is completely different sound. And mm-hmm. uh, so anyway, it's just, uh, but, but the main thing for me as far as Harvard is Harvard being there. I, so I'm growing up, I went to a school for gifted children all the way from kindergarten through 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated and um, I completed school in 11 years instead of 12 because they, you know, double promoted me, whatever that's called. And I was recruited by MIT and Harvard when I was like 15 years old. And so the thing about going to the university really for me was this huge expansion of scope Mm -hmm. from the resources of a small private school to uh, the resources of a university and being able to be around a lot of people that had the same interest and people that knew a lot more than me about all sorts of things and mm-hmm. not just, you know, organic chemistry that I was interested in and working with grad students in the lab and all that, but people that knew all about, you know, I don't know, Shakespeare or something or, you know, agriculture in Ireland in the 16th century or something, you know, and it's like, wow, this person knows that much about that thing that's that's you know that's pretty impressive i mean it doesn't mean i'm gonna have dinner with them every night but uh you know so because i've always had kind of an eclectic interest in human experience and and what people do and what people do to one another and and those sorts of things and to just kind of understand how the world works and 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 why things go wrong and how to fix those things when they go wrong 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. <clears throat> and you, in your background, I, I think you also have uh, you mentioned Thailand, and uh, we spoke before. Uh, and you have some history and background there. You have some history w- uh, in the Congo, if I remember correctly, the Amazon. Uh, before before I dive into that, was your goal always to be a healer? Because you you wanted to be? Did you want to be a doctor? Did you want to be a healer? Like what was what was your mindset? Because I know you mentioned your mom and all that, and you know mm-hmm. I, I I never I personally never wanted to be a doctor. But I always wanted to see how I can help people with plant medicine. I'm not. I just don't think that I was uh, ever uh, you know like looking at blood and all that stuff that wasn't in my uh, DNA. <laughs> Basically, I was just like no, no 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 no. If I if I see blood, man, I'm running the other way. So I just wanted to kind of get your mindset around that. So, so I did a lot of biology and stuff when I was in high school. So I had done dissections on frogs and fetal pigs and things like that. I used to always in my free time, the campus, the school that I went to was way out in the countryside. It had a little creek and things like that. So I used to get water samples and look at them under the microscope, you know, when I had time off and biology teacher, you know, knew me very well. And, you know, there were only a few classes during the day. So the biology lab was open for people to use. And unfortunately, I wasn't as, uh, my choices weren't as fortuitous as some of my friends, because we also had a computer uh, room. It wasn't really a lab, because computers were pretty new. But one of the guys who was, I guess, two years ahead of me, maybe three years ahead of me in school. Yeah. And he ended up going to Harvard, too. He was one of the first 20 employees at uh, Microsoft, and now he's a billionaire. And so if I had been looking at computer programs instead of paramecia under the microscope, well, then, you know, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. So right. I guess I, 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 I win because he's a billionaire, but I get to talk to you. So obviously I mean. Big win for you. <laughs> big, big win for me. So yeah, so I wasn't interested in being a doctor at all. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the people that I went to school with, a lot of them were doctors' kids, and mm-hmm. a lot of the attitudes that they had bothered me. Um, I remember, you know, distinctly being on the bus going to school, and after Christmas, hearing kids complain about the Christmas gifts that they got, because it's like I can't believe my father got me the wrong skis, you know. And <laughs> I'd say to put it in, you know, current perspective, it's like he got you an iPhone 10. Doesn't he know there's already a 12? <laughs> yeah my father likes to save money you know meanwhile you got like a little flip phone from target you know and and, right. and so i just i it was unfortunate to me that the kids that were so fortunate um the school i went to was in called roper it's called roper school and it's in bloomfield hills michigan mm-hmm. and um at the time bloomfield hills was the most affluent zip code in the united states so more so than Beverly Hills, more so than the Hamptons in New York and all those other, you know, fabled uh, areas. And I guess mm-hmm. because of the car industry was, you know, such a big uh, industry at the time. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and so for people that had so much, you know, my parents were teachers, you know, they made like twenty twenty five thousand dollars $25,000 a year. You know, our house was about that same price, you know, and these people had mansions and they right. were still unhappy. And I thought that's an, you know, it's an unfortunate thing. If a person who is affluent is unhappy, to me, that's tragic. It's tragic to be poor and unhappy, but most people that are poor think that they'll be happy if they have more money. So there's hope, at least the lottery. You know, right. but if you've already got a million dollars and you're not happy, you know, you've already had all the plastic surgery that you could have and you're still not happy, that's kind of a dead end. And, yeah. and so, uh, 
anyway, like I said, I, I pay attention to the human condition in a lot of mm-hmm. different states. And that's one of those things. Most people don't feel sorry for anybody who's affluent or wealthy or handsome or whatever. But a lot of times people that are in that situation are, are very troubled and you just don't see it until they end up, you know, ODing on something somewhere and it shows up in the newspaper. But um, so, so yeah, the, um, my interest was in science. And specifically chemistry and 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 the chemistry of biology and things like that. But when I was a senior in high school and right at the end of senior year, so people were asking me, you know, so what was I going to do in college? And and I used to tell people that I was planning to major in biology and then go on and do a PhD in biology because I wanted to do cancer research. And there's one guy whose father was a doctor. Um, when he heard me say that, he told me, he's like, oh, well, you'll have to go to medical school to do cancer research, you know, because it involves patients. You won't be able to do research as a PhD. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was right because he acted like he was right. And his father was a doctor. So I was like, okay, well. So then when I went to college, I was pre-med and was majoring in biology first um, because it's just, you know, again, like I said, you don't. As a kid, I mean, now, like I said, with the internet, you can basically learn anything sitting on in your bathroom, you know, but um, to, to know that there's so much involved in cancer, to know that there's so much to health beyond biology. And, you know, when I was at Harvard, the biochemistry department didn't even exist yet. It was still a division of the chemistry department. So things like molecular biology, and all of these other things that that are uh, present now, you know, DNA sequencing and all that hadn't happened yet. So um, I had had a lot to learn about what cancer is and what it took to study cancer and what it took to understand it. And ultimately found out that biology was really the wrong path because biology at the time was very rudimentary. It didn't have anything, like I was saying, nothing was molecular about biology at the time except for DNA and their way of explaining things was very sort of rinky dink explanation. It was this one day in class where they were teaching uh, DNA replication and, and how when the cell divides, how is the DNA in the cell uh, replicated? How, how are the copies made? And, and again, this is a long time ago. So the average person never talked about DNA like they do now. People say, well, it's the DNA of our corporation. I guess that's just part of my <laughs> DNA. It's become part of, you know, vernacular, but back then, right. you know, and anyway, the professor is teaching this class and he's saying, so, you know, inside of the nucleus, you know, the DNA unwinds and DNA polymerase, which is the enzyme that, you know, copies the DNA strand to make a new DNA strand, it walks along the DNA strand until it finds the initiator sequence, and then it sits down there and it reads the DNA and begins copying it. And I, I was horrified. I put my pencil or pen or whatever I was taking notes with. You know, here I am paying all this money because I paid my way through school. Um, here I am paying all this money, and this person is telling me that DNA polymerase, this enzyme, this molecule walks, it sees, <laughs> it sits, and it makes copies. And if it can't tell me, if he can't tell me, okay, what's the mechanism of how it walks? How is a molecule able to see? Okay. And how, how is it going from walking to sitting? If you can't tell me that, you'd better not just, I just <laughs> that same week, 
that same week, I changed my major from biology to chemistry because in chemistry, um, you get the feeling that you know everything because you can, you got two dots on a piece of paper, you draw a circle and make an arrow. And these two electrons from the oxygen go over here and they attack the carbon and they go in this little bubble of the electron density of the molecular orbitals of carbon. And so then you now have a chemical bond between the oxygen and the carbon. It's like, okay, there it is. And then you can verify it with the NMR or, you know, spectroscopy or whatever. Yeah. Else. Like, okay, these people know what they're talking about. <laughs> and so the other stuff, it was just... Made a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, it made a lot more sense because it's one of those things, one of the big challenges that I faced, so here's something for the kids, was my parents were always very uh, straightforward. Our house was a very, very straightforward, flat uh, relationship house. The parents uh, were responsible but they weren't superior. And the school I went to was that way too. So, you know, like we would play Scrabble and if you put a word down, you know, and just if the parents said, oh, that's not a word. You know, my brother was really big with words. My brother ended up working at, you know, NASA, JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He was smarter than me, I would say. <laughs> and anyway, um, but if you could show it's in the dictionary, then it's a word. It wasn't like, well, your father said this. You know, well, your mother said that. We didn't have any of that. You, whatever you said, you had to be able to prove it. And in fact, when I was in medical school at Stanford, my girlfriend at the time, my fiance, actually, she was in uh, law school. And when I would go to parties with her, all of her law student friends were like, you should be a lawyer. You're more like a lawyer than I am. It's just because I was used to making a point that was a defensible point and knowing how to defend the point and also how to dismantle someone else's argument and i just was used to doing that because the people i was around the schools i went to but basically it was part of the core function you know of my house my house even though as uh, eddie murphy used to say i came from a predominantly black family it wasn't like the black families you see on tv you know it wasn't it wasn't like the movies like soul food or whatever all the other <laughs> tv shows that they have my parents were both school teachers they'd grown up in the depression and they were serious about, you know, you'd better get in there and, you know, get your work done, get your homework done, because you've got to go to college, because that's the opportunity, you know, as an African-American kid in the United States, education is a key, you know, and you're not going to get any place if you don't know what you know and know how to express what you know, that sort of a thing. So anyway, so that's just. I like how you said that your brother went to NASA, uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, and uh, he's smarter than you. You're a real underachiever, I think, with uh, <laughs> going to Harvard and Stanford. It's, that's really, uh, it's really interesting. But I, I, I kind of touched on it uh, for uh, a minute about you know having this. Uh, to me, you're sort of uh, you have all such an eclectic background. Because when we talk, and I, I mentioned, I just said Thailand. Like, oh, you know, I, I speak some Thai, and I know Thai, and spending some time in, in these, like, how, how did this journey evolve where you uh, were in these different countries, you were able to, you know, get the, the local flavor and bring that into, you know, some of the areas of interest that you have now? Well, um even when I had very limited horizons, you know, as a kid in Michigan, as a kid in Detroit, um, I always had very diverse experiences. So the school that I went to 
was a very, very diverse school. You know, there were Italian kids and Polish kids and about 20% of the school was Jewish. The school was started by a couple from Germany whose family had run private schools there in Germany, but they left uh, right at the beginning of World War II. The wife was Jewish, the husband was Christian, and that's how he was able to get her and her family out to avoid the Holocaust thing. And so they had a very humanist perspective uh, because of what they had been through and also what they escaped going through. And so they were very like multicultural minded long before the words like diversity and multicultural and all that existed. And so, you know, there were kids that were Puerto Rican or that were Mexican or Japanese or Chinese or whatever. Just there were all these different, and there were kids that were wealthy and there were kids that were poor and there were black kids that were rich and white kids that were poor and white kids that were rich and black kids that were poor, you know, and when I say poor, I don't mean poor, like homeless poor like like now people talk about but just in the sense that you know their parents may not have a steady job or whatever they were at the school on scholarship or some sort of thing like that right and so there were always these multiple contexts to me the world was very uh you know diverse non-uniform very heterogeneous and so somebody might say Oh, you're a black guy from Detroit. And they think that means something. It's like, yeah, it doesn't really mean a whole lot. It's like, depends on if, are you from the east side or from the west side? Are you from north of Seven Mile Road? Are you from Sherwood Forest? Are you from the projects? I mean, there's a lot of different things. And people that are from this part of town don't go over there. You know, it's like telling somebody that they're Italian. It's like, okay, Italian. So in Philly and in New York City and in Boston, that's all very different, right? <laughs> and you can't just roll up into <laughs> Queens in New York coming from Philly. Hey, Italian guys, I'm Italian. You know, come in. You're like, we don't know you. If you don't already know us, don't come in being our brother. You need to walk in through the, you know, new guest entrance door until you get some local credibility. And uh, so anyway, so I, I that's one of the things that I that I recognize that there are lots of different types of people within those types that not all Jewish people are the same and not all Italians are the same. And, you know, obviously not all people that are called white or black or Asian or whatever are the same. And I always wanted to understand where I was. So understanding the culture and even the language much of the time. Um, was was really important. And and my father was very much that way. And so we used to go to a lot of different, what they used to call ethnic restaurants back then, like Greek food. There's a Greek town in Detroit that's very famous. And there's a lot of Arabic restaurants right there in the Greek town. And um, whenever we would go to these places, he knew a few phrases. He knew how to say at least hello or thank you or whatever in all these different languages, we used to buy our meat from a kosher Jewish deli and, and all these things. My brother's godmother was Jewish, you know, so there was a lot of this cultural interchange that was available. And um, so kind of expanding to, you know, to Boston and to California and then to other countries. I took an interest in Thailand primarily because Thai restaurants started showing up and, <laughs> and then a friend and a friend of mine actually that I had gone to high school with was in a movie in Thailand, a movie called Good Morning Vietnam with Robin mm-hmm. Williams. 
Right. Robin Williams actually went to school just about five miles away from my school. He went to Detroit Country Day. Mm. And uh, uh, anyway, so and the that that view of the world for me, I guess, is what allows me to just continue adding new pieces to the puzzle, new Legos to the building or whatever, because it's just Thailand is just another neighborhood that you can't get to on the local bus. You know, you got to take a transfer. You know I'm saying, because, you know, you know, there's like places you can go, you can hop on your bike and you go, go here, go there, you know, there's the same Philly, whatever, but there's this point that you don't cross. Right. Could be a river, you know, Detroit's right across the river from Canada and, and, and Windsor, Canada. So I never went there on my bike. I would go there with my parents. Okay, but there's this point beyond which you don't go, either because it's a hostile neighborhood or because there's a natural boundary. Maybe there's a freeway. Your parents tell you to not cross the major street or whatever. But then once you can cross those boundaries, then that's just the place that was on the. So Thailand is just really a couple neighborhoods away from Detroit, you know. <laughs> and sure, they speak different language and all that, but. You know, when you went to Hamtramck, which is just outside of Detroit, there were lots of uh, Polish uh, businesses there. It was a big uh, Polish population there. Another language. So it's the idea that people would be different than me um, was always a primary principle. I didn't expect to be like other people and nobody ever treated me like I was part of the group. I, did, I never fit in with any group because going to private school, um, and having two parents, they were teachers. When I would spend time in the neighborhood where I lived, like say in the summertime and, you know, playing ball and football in the street and baseball in the park and all that, everybody in my neighborhood knew that I didn't go to public school with them because I didn't speak the same way. Got it. And so yeah. it just from, they would always tell me, I, you know, you talk like you're white, you know, and I didn't actually learn how to speak and sound black until I saw it on TV. You know, like when that became popular in the in the 80s or whatever, and Samuel L. Jackson and people like that, that sort of caricature, because not everybody black speaks that way. And but that tone, you know, it was, it was a, like learning a foreign language, you know. And so I can imitate that that sound, you know, mm. but it's just. Uh, so there's just different ways that I'll speak depending on who I'm speaking to. Right. And it's it's a very funny thing that happens if I'm around, say, Caribbean people. I used to play soccer a lot back when soccer was not so much of a popular American sport. And so that was also a very international experience. And when I would, you know, get the sound in my ear of different accents and people speaking English, it would affect immediately the way I speak. Because I'm just so used to you know, adapting and changing languages and changing vernacular and all that with people. And mm -hmm. it was, it was advantageous in soccer because one day when I was at Harvard and just playing a pickup game and, you know, you call for the ball, it's like, ball, hey, pass, you know, pass, cross, whatever, all these phrases to forget. I'm open and the ball would never come. And I would notice it because it was mostly foreign guys and they would pass to other foreign guys. It wouldn't even necessarily be from the same country. Some Nigerian guy might pass to a guy from Argentina or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh. And then it, something clicked in my head. And so I started saying, ball, ball, I'm open, ball, ball, pass, pass. And boom, the ball would show up right away. And I, like, okay, I know what's going on. Uh, that's so, hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it's, it, it's, it's a fun thing to me to understand what it means to be human because it also helps to 
decode a lot of the BS that we're fed as Americans it's on TV. And people get on TV or on the radio and start talking about we. Well, we know now that, you know, the black hole in the center of the galaxy is actually not the reason for climate change. And what we know about COVID and what we know about Canada, everybody's talking about is we. Who's we? I don't know you. <laughs> Are you going to tell me? And, you know, all of us, you know, agree that, you know, the oil wells need to, you know, and it's just, it's an arrogant, so to speak. It, it makes my, uh, you know, skin cringe or whatever the phrase is and uh it's the sheep mentality everybody it's there it it's to... crazy it, it's crazy but even a sheep will look at you if you get out there and start talking about we <laughs> like, like uh-huh. not us. <laughs> you know you know you sleep indoors so uh let's, let's not <laughs> let's not play the games here so anyway so just the there are lots of things that i understand better like say in psychotropic medicine and anesthesia there's a lot of differences between individual responses to drugs and there are some ethnic differences sometimes that are Mm -hmm. evident and people would say oh you know like asian women are very sensitive to opiate drugs and even it's the sedatives and so you might want to cut the dose in half Mm -hmm. and so a lot of times you realize that you might be looking at a woman as say who's 35 years old as just a woman yeah. And you may not notice that at the same height, maybe that this one has a lot more body fat, this one has less body fat. So like a lot of times, you know, Asian, especially younger Asian women have a lot less body fat than Americans do. And, but if you don't pay attention to that, you're not paying attention to some of the parameters that are relevant um, mm. for, you know, administration of drugs, especially in anesthesia, you're doing these things, right. milligram per kilogram, IV push, and suddenly that drug's on board. And, and if they're not metabolizing the drug as fast as the other person over there, and then also sometimes people, their complaint about pain and then their experience of, of, you know, anything in that emergency room, operating room, intensive care unit space, some cultures complain more, some complain less. And some people will never tell you something hurts. And some people will tell you something hurts the minute you walk in the door. And so, um, to understand really what's going on because ultimately now I'm responsible. If I shoot a hundred micrograms of fentanyl into that person's IV and they stop breathing, I've got to be able to explain to somebody, well, why'd you give them, you know, so much, you know, they're not even going to know, ask how much they need. Like, well, just a hundred micrograms. Well, it was obviously too much because they're not breathing, you know? And so you've got to be able to explain what was your thought process. And, you know, coming from the household, I came from that, easy for me to explain yeah. but i also recognize that if i'm I, I used to get in trouble actually in my residency because i would question people because i i don't have that natural deference that most people mm-hmm. have because i wasn't raised with it and so it doesn't matter if i'm talking to somebody older than me or younger than me somebody with a degree or not a degree a person is a person and i talk to people typically on a very flat you know direction unless they're right. trying to talk down to me then i'll try sometimes if i feel like it you know, do tongue foo and you know, kind of chop it <laughs> down a little bit. But, you know, I've met the president of India, you know, and different places. I've been in situations to meet people that are dignitaries or whatever. But to me, a person's a person. And it's just like, right. you know, who is this person and, and, and what are they saying? And so the professors, you know, at, at Stanford, they were just people. And especially they weren't that much older than me because mm-hmm. anesthesia faculty they tend to run kind of young they tend to be like in their 40s and you know coming out of medical school i was in my 20s um 
But, you know, I remember the chairman of the department coming in one time and saying to me, it's like, oh, I wouldn't do that that way if I were you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And he didn't say anything else. And so I kept doing what I was doing. He said, oh, well, I said, I wouldn't do it that way. I said, well, you didn't tell me any other way to do it. <laughs> I, I've done it this way all along, you know, and, and he was like, well, you know, you know, you're in training, you know, aren't you open to learning? And I was like, well, in order to learn, you got to tell me what it is that I'm supposed to learn. But yeah. the last person on your faculty that I worked with yesterday did it this way, you know? Yeah. And, and so, but other people, you know, they're like, oh, really? What did I do wrong? I know I didn't <laughs> do anything wrong. I don't do things that are wrong. I, I almost never do anything wrong. And that might sound like an arrogant thing, but I, you can make a mistake. That's not right. wrong. Mm-hmm. Wrong is when you do something and you know, you know, you know, you threw the Kleenex over the trash can and it missed and you didn't bother to get up and pick it up. Then my mom walks in the room and says, that's your Kleenex? I did something <laughs> wrong. Okay. Because <laughs> I know that that Kleenex sitting on the floor is not the right thing. The right thing to do is to get up, walk over, put it in the trash can and come back and not try and be, you know, basketball superstar and throw it in there <laughs> 10 feet away. And so that's wrong. Okay. Um, but if I walk into somebody's house who's Japanese and I'm walking wearing my shoes and I don't know that they wear take off their shoes, that's not wrong because nobody's given me that set of rules. We don't have a right. contract yet. Okay. Yep. And so, so anyway, so those sorts of things. So I have a lot of confidence in the things that I'm doing because I've already thought about what I'm doing before I do it. And I also don't feel responsible for new bodies of information that have not been presented to me. I don't have that natural sense of, I hear people apologize all the time for things that they can't control. I don't apologize for things that I can't control. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people, you know, like you go to a store and somebody, oh, I'm so sorry. The computer's really slow today. And I think that's terrible that anybody should have to have all those crazy neurotransmitters in their brain, making them less happy, making them depressed, depressing their immune system and making them age faster just because I'm standing there waiting for them to print out a receipt. I'm not asking for them to be stressed. I think it's a terrible thing that people do to themselves. And so I usually, but because I've kind of learned about people and how to speak to people and people that are outside of a laboratory, (laughs) you know, and I just told them, I said, oh, you know, don't worry, you know, computers, they make mistakes too, but you know, what's funny. They never get fired. And then if you're like, you know, isn't that the thing, (laughs) you know, and then suddenly, and ah, then they get a little laugh. And, and so uh, that was one of my professors in anesthesia when he wrote my recommendation letters. That was one of the things he said that I had a very disarming sense of humor. And I didn't realize at the time that, that was such an important thing because again i was like i said i was in my 20s and i didn't realize that adults and especially sometimes adult males are so competitive mm. and so competitive in like a destructive way like they're hoping the other person will fail they want to be able to point something out or laugh at them and and i came from a very non-competitive background because of the humanist school even though we had sports and all that it wasn't it wasn't usually about hurting somebody unless they were trying to hurt you first or whatever but even though I was in Detroit, it's the murder capital, but it's like, look, unless I'm in that, in a battle situation, I'm not trying to harm anybody. I want everybody to win. Yep. And um, I used to have a terrible time playing intramural basketball because uh, my best friend growing up, you know, if he was on the other team, I don't, I don't want him to lose. He's my best right. friend. <laughs> you know, he's making a shot. I want it to go in. I, want to go in <laughs> I don't want to block his shot. That's my friend. 
you know, and and so it, it, I know it's a little bit unusual characteristic for people to have, and so I had to learn how to to manage that sort of a thing. But uh, but anyway, so it's just yeah. for me, it's a lot about understanding these circumstances that people find themselves in. Because when you get into something as complicated as psychotropics, mm-hmm. you're really looking at it's like, so what's going to make this person feel better? It's not some sort of dear Abby, you know blog person whatever generic advice you know people think if you take a homeless person give them a home and a bath some clothes and five hundred dollars they'll be better like no you really don't understand what that means Mm -hmm. there's something more going on it's it's that that quick fix mentality if i just inject you with this you know ten thousand dollar loan you'll turn into a normal person like, you know, if you respect the person, you might realize that they're probably there for a reason. And there are things in this world that can really, really get to a person to the point where they just can't cope. And yeah. you'd really just be happy that they didn't show up at their old workplace or at the post office shooting people or at the park. <laughs> and that yeah. they just kind of, you know, took it out on themselves and, you know, are sleeping in the street or whatever. But there's a lot of things that can take, take a person out in this world. And if they don't end up homeless and they're still holding it together to be mom or dad or employee or whatever, sometimes it's even more complicated because maybe inside they're homeless. You know, their spirit, their soul might be completely, boom, you know, disenfranchised, but they're trying to keep it together. And if that person presents and says they've got, you know, back pain, they've got PTSD, or they've got anxiety or depression or whatever. You know, it can be a huge Pandora's box if you think that everybody is supposed to look the same on the inside, like, you know, like an anatomy atlas and should just be able to peel away those layers and continue to help people and not do any harm. There's at least as much art to it as as science. And I I usually favor the art over the science. Yeah, no, I I think it's a brilliant way of putting it. And sort of goes along with what, you know, the show is called. Everything is personal. We, you know, that's, that's what we talk about. Everybody has a, a personal, personal experience. Uh, it's personal, it's health and wellness. Everything is personal. So I, I definitely, uh, you know, appreciate you, uh, you talking about that. I have a few questions uh, that we ask all our guests, uh, very, very complicated questions. So um, please describe your first experience with cannabis. Oh gosh, I thought you were going to say sex. I was. <laughs> That's so the other podcast. Because I was, I was nine years old. And it's, you know, anyway, no, um, my first experience with cannabis. Wow. Okay. My first experience with cannabis, my brother was seven years older than me. And he went away to college. When he came back from college, he used to, he went to Case Western Reserve in Cleveland, Ohio. And he, you know, used, cannabis frequently and of course at the time it was still illegal mm-hmm. and um that created a lot of hassle between him and my father and at that time again you know kind of like the little narrow you know detroit kids view of the world marijuana was something that hippies did it was invented then it didn't have any history it you know the plant didn't even exist on on the face of the earth prior to um the 1960s. And so, uh, oh, are we still there? Great. 
oddly enough, I just got a call from Dr. Jake Felice. Isn't that funny? <laughs> um, anyway, uh, and so I didn't know that Louis Armstrong smoked marijuana like every day. Um, and, and so learning about cannabis and again, like it's personal, like what are different people's way of relating to it and all these different things. And, and so, um, and at my school, there were kids that used, uh, smoke weed, whatever, um, often hiding off in the bushes and that sort of thing, I guess. And I was never part of that crowd, but people always, when I was a 16, people always used to ask me, was I high? Cause I used to be very kind of relaxed and like, Hey, how's it going? And all that. And, 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 uh, people were like, are you high? Are you high? And I didn't, I didn't understand cause I didn't even you know, know what it meant. And I never actually, uh, my brother tried to get me to, to smoke weed with him, but I didn't like smoking, uh, anything, cigarettes or any of that kind of stuff. Cause I tried smoking cigarettes and, <laughs> to impress a girl right. she was pretty though yeah. and uh anyway, work. Her, name, her name was linda and uh <laughs> but anyway and i met her on the porch of her house and and she asked my friend and i were riding our bikes i was i guess i was 13 i think yeah i was 13 and did we have a cigarette and we didn't have any cigarettes and she was like oh okay so it was obvious, like, you know, you can come hang out with me on my porch, but you got to come up here with some cigarettes. Exactly. Oh, wow. She's pretty fine, though. So my friend, he knew all about cigarettes. He's like, we'll be right back. We <laughs> <laughs> went down the street. He went to the corner drugstore, <laughs> bought a pack of cigarettes and cool filter king yeah. and uh, came back. And that's how we got to meet. And but I used we used to go back there every couple of days or so and just hang out and everybody would have a cigarette. And she was younger than us. My friend probably was a year old than me, so he's probably 14. And I'd seen people smoke on TV, and so, you know, I knew how to do it, so I thought. And one day she said to me, it's like, you don't inhale, do you? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> she said, inhale, you're not inhaling, you're just sucking smoke in and blowing it out. I was like, yeah, that's what it looks like on TV, you know, you see them go, right. and they blow it out. And, uh, and to uh, find out, that um to find out that people were actually inhaling smoke in their lungs and so i mean she was like you have to inhale it i was like really i was like okay when i inhaled it it was like horrible and i was like you know the, i know they were menthol cigarettes too and I was like, oh my god this is terrible <laughs> and so after that i never even pretended to smoke and um when i got to college all my roommates smoked weed in the in the dorm room and one guy was from philly and one guy was from the suburbs of Chicago and the other guy was from New Hampshire and uh, big guys like six feet five. He, he's the uh, director of the uh, Museum of Natural History now in uh, in New York. He was he, he's like an astrogeologist or some sort of thing like that. He's really brilliant guy. He was he worked on the first Mars rover landing or some sort of thing like that. Um, but anyway, so they everybody was always trying to get me to smoke. And I was like, no, 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 you know. And everybody I knew had already gotten high on my girlfriend at the time. She was very meek and shy, but she had tried marijuana in high school. And this guy who was trying to be my best friend and always wanted to hang out and go to movies and stuff, you know, he said that he had tried it in high school, but none of them, you know, actively smoked. But probably my best friend in, in college, this guy named 
uh, oh, I, I shouldn't say his name because he's still a practicing <laughs> physician. He ended up going to Harvard Medical School. Um, he, uh, he smoked weed, marijuana every night at 10 p.m. At 10 p.m., no matter what we had to do, he, he didn't do all-nighters for studying. He was a bright guy. He didn't have to work that hard. And, uh, and so uh, every night at 10 p.m., close the notebooks and the books, rolled a joint. He would talk to me about Thai stick and Maui and all this. He was like, smell this bag. I've got it refrigerated. Look how green it is. Look at, you know, this is like, you know, a street weed, you know, it's not yeah. like, you know, dispensaries and all that now. And, uh, he was like the serious connoisseur of, of, of the, of the herb as he used to like to call it. And, uh, so I thought that was very cool. And, and he always did very good and he would get blazed as they used to call it back then. And his eyes would get red and all that. So eventually, um, I realized, because my brother also, like I said, is an active marijuana smoker. And I thought, you know, I should try this just to see what it is. Because there's so many issues on both sides. Mm -hmm. There's so many people that think it's great, like wonderful. It's simple, like having a beer. And I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And, but it's really, you know, no different than drinking. Um, And to other people, it's like, no, it's this awful thing. You should never do it. But it wasn't like cocaine thing or heroin it wasn't like these so-called hard drugs that people would get addicted to and that they would ruin their lives and all these terrible things happen um so i never tried any of those and um but i thought you know okay i'll I'll try it because by this time back then people used to keep uh except for my my friend who was the connoisseur kept his in a ziploc bag uh, in the refrigerator but everybody else used to keep it in these film canisters yep by the time I'd been, uh, this is like my second semester of my freshman year. So by the time I'd been in college for, I guess by that point, like eight months, nine months, this is probably like March or April of my freshman year. Mm-hmm. I probably had two or three film canisters of, of weed because people were always giving it to me. They were just like, what? You know? And so they would think, oh, he probably doesn't want to get high around people. He doesn't want people to know or something. But People were just always giving me stuff, you know. And the one friend that I had who went on to be the director of the Museum of Natural History, he used to smoke hash because his family had money, you know, so he could pay for hash. I didn't know the price difference, but I didn't know anything about the difference. I just knew that it was all marijuana. And so he would, like, give me, it's like, oh, here, here, just take this. It's all already at the bottom. It's just a little bit left. But just one day, if you ever decide. And so I had all these little canisters that were filled with different stuff that people had given me. So there was a little hash in there. It was a little Maui. Who knows what else was in there? <laughs> so one day I decided I was going to try with my girlfriend. And I got somebody, I don't know who it was, maybe one of my roommates let me use their bong. Mm-hmm. And I had, I was a big fan of uh, another guy from Philly back then, Bill Cosby. Um, and our whole family was a big fan of his, you know, we used to listen to I, w- to I went to the same university. I, I went to Tom. I know. I, I wasn't going to mention it. You, you know, you weren't going to mention it. I was going to let you, you know. Back when he was still an American hero. Right. Um, and, but anyway, he had this one routine that he used to do um, that was like not the family routine, but the Las Vegas routine. And the routine was, he said that, you know, talking about different drugs, he said, but you know what? You know, people that do, maybe he called it reefer probably or something. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting thing about slang terms for marijuana. I just learned from a friend of mine that is a, also I worked with in the rainforest in the Amazon. His name's Mark Plotkin, big uh, celebrity guy in rainforest conservation. He's from Louisiana. 
And one of the slang terms for marijuana in Louisiana is muggle. And, and so I thought, I wonder if the muggles that they're talking about in Harry Potter, <laughs> they don't have witchcraft, but they've got weed, you know. Exactly. Anyway, that's for the boys and girls. Anyway, so, um, uh, so I borrowed this bong. But anyway, so Bill Cosby and his routine would talk about the people that get high on marijuana they have to get, they work harder than anybody else. He's like, yeah, you know, if you want to get drunk, you have, you know, two or three shots or whatever. And boom, there you are. He says, but marijuana, you know, they like, they, you know, light it up and then they inhale and then they have to hold it. And they have it in it. And they take another breath. And, you know, Bill Crosby likes to exaggerate everything. But in listening to that, and I was like, oh, okay. So that's what you need to do. That was my instruction manual. You know, a lot of times people, when they're smoking recreationally, a lot of people report that, oh, they never got high the first time or the second time when they smoked. It didn't have any effect and all that. And I've always been a very efficient person. So I made <laughs> sure that I had efficient techniques. So I had this bong and I had it loaded with who knows what was in there, half hash, half marijuana, whatever it was. And I'm <laughs> over my breath as long as I can. You know, and everybody else is just smoking and blowing yeah. it out. And I'm a little smoke. <laughs> And I'll suck it back in. So it only took me about three hits. <laughs> and boom. And then the effect took place. And um, it was interesting. You know, I started to have like a little, you know, giggly feeling and laughing. I knew about those. I've been around people smoking all the time. Because yeah. like I said, everybody was smoking weed and everything. And, but there was this one effect that, really really surprised me and i guess people call it a buzz or a rush or whatever but it was like this feeling that came up over my back and up my neck and over the top of my head that was like all tingly and <clears throat> and everything and i was like oh my god i recognize this feeling that feeling is a feeling i used to always get as a kid whenever i shared my toys my parents are really big on sharing. You have company, you have guests in your house, you have to share. You got a peanut butter sandwich, give them half of it. You've got, you know, your favorite toys or whatever. Let them play with your toys. Don't be selfish. And so I had to. But the side effect of it, which I didn't expect to have happen, was so, you know, on Sunday after church, a bunch of my friends come over because their parents come over to visit my parents or whatever. And we're downstairs playing with Army Man, G.I. Joe, whatever, all that kind of stuff. And I'm letting them play with these toys and I could feel this huge tingle. And it was like, it was like almost like, well, you know, I could see it's like a semi trance hypnotic state or something. I was just like, wow. And I, I wouldn't even play. I would just let them play. They were like, Hey, don't you want, you can have the bazooka. And I'm like, Oh yeah, you go ahead. And so years later with the marijuana, I was like, wow, people spent all this money and hide and do all these things and smoke this stuff to get the same feeling I used to get when I was nine years old. And I would, you know, share my toys with kids. I was like, wow, that's really funny. So for me, that's like the most standout memory of, of you know, psychotropics yeah. and, and all of that. And I've had the same experience other times mm -hmm. and um, without any drug being involved. And so for me, being like this molecular neurochemistry minded person, it's like, wow, so all this stuff is really inside of people. That's, that's the one thing I think that people tend to forget. I used to do these lectures about uh, uh, the mind and neurochemistry and all that to different 
you know, to like lay audiences like patients and sometimes to doctors is to remember that the drug isn't really causing anything because every, every effect that any drug has is already a system in the body. And so, you know, everybody knows about the endocannabinoid system and all those things, but people kind of forget that it's the body doing it. It's like the drug is just giving permission, you know, so you put a, whatever, I guess it's not a quarter anymore. You put a dollar or whatever in a vending machine and you hit a button and, and out comes a can of Coke or whatever, a bag of chips or something like that. That capacity is already in that machine. You just had to trigger it. So a dollar bill does not create a soda or create a bag of potato chips. That machine already has that potential. So that means, you know, somebody who takes MDMA you know, so it hits serotonin receptors, it activates oxytocin and uh, norepinephrine and all that. All of those chemicals are what creates the effect. Right. The ecstasy is just saying, it's like a recipe. It's saying, look, you've got all of these ingredients, all of these spices. I do a lot of cooking. My mom taught cooking, so I've been cooking ever since I was six. And cooking and chemistry are like mm -hmm. the same thing. And so you might have all of these different, you know, spices, salt and pepper and cumin and garlic powder and onion powder and turmeric, and maybe you're going to make curry and cinnamon and nutmeg and allspice and ginger. Okay, you can make a lot of different types of food with that. You know, you can make chai tea, Indian style tea, you can make garam masala, you can make Jamaican jerk pork or chicken. And there's, these spices are in a lot of different types of foods. It just depends on how you combine them. And so it's the same thing with the neurotransmitters, depending on, you know, what state of mind you want to enter in. That state of mind has a chemical fingerprint, a neurochemical fingerprint. And the drug is just very good at going directly there. You know, it's like there are certain people that when they come to a party, everybody gets into that party mode. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, well, wait till Lynn gets here. Lynn, he's the party dude. <laughs> when everybody shows up, it'll be like, yeah, oh, yeah. Suddenly, it just the party starts happening. Exactly. Until then, the exact same people are there. <laughs> the music is playing, but it's kind of like hmm, sixty percent party. Like eh, yep. people are thinking of leaving, and and people think that person was the party, but the party was already there. Everybody had that capacity to hit that state. Right. People that get high to party. That's what I used to think was so amazing. It was like, oh, yeah, we're gonna have a great time. We're gonna do a bunch of shots, and we're gonna hit the bong. We're gonna, we're gonna have a great time at this concert, this party. I used to tell people, you must be really boring. If you know, how could you possibly go to you know one of these spring break parties on South Beach, or go to some amazing club in LA, or go to some concert? Your favorite band is you know in concert, you know whoever it is, Prince or you know whatever. I don't know whoever's supposed to be a big deal, Kanye or these people that go to these concerts. How could you not be excited? How could you actually need something else? How could you possibly need something else? How boring are you? If you need to get drunk or you need to get high in order to enjoy Star Wars yeah. or the light show, the fireworks, I always thought that was weird. Yeah. And but then I realized it was me that was weird because I could just share my toys and boom, fireworks are going yeah. off in my head. But the key thing about psychotropic medicines and mm -hmm. mushrooms, psychedelics and all of that is there like that party person. Yeah. The party is available inside of each of us. That state of mind, you can go from depression to euphoria, 
you can go from anxiety to calm and all that. And whether a person uses a exogenous substance like a drug, a molecule, a plant, a mushroom, or if they use a technique like breathing or meditation, it's about being able to hit that target space, that, that state of mind that you want to be in in order to live your life or to, you know, go to a concert or go to a job interview or whatever that is. And so that's the thing that to me is, is super fascinating is that it's really not this thing. It's really not THC. That's not what's happening. It's really not psilocybin. It's not MDMA. It's not LSD. It's not DMT. It's that person and who they could be. And the most amazing thing that I learned in anesthesia is, and I realized somebody has said it before. I saw some quotes somewhere. I thought I was the first one to say it, but it basically all of us have 12 personalities inside of us, 11 of which we don't know. And, you know, you know, you know, a lot of people's like, oh yeah, after he's had three beers, he turns into a, so you might know that, yeah, this person has two personalities when he's at work. And then that, when he's at the bar, the sports bar after work, but that same person, you put them in the operating room and you give them these drugs to go to sleep. And this certain personality comes out, especially when they wake up. But if you give them these other drugs, like Diprofen, the one that Michael Jackson OD'd on, they wake up completely different. It's almost like you gave them ecstasy or something. They wake up like, hi, you're so wonderful. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and so to realize that, well, they were all went into the same state, technically. They went into stage three anesthesia or whatever. They had, you know, surgical anesthesia. They had you know, some GI surgery, mm -hmm. some, you know, invasive surgery, major surgery, and then they come out. And so it shouldn't matter what drug you put them into that state. You could assume because they're asleep, you know, think you hit them in the head, they don't wake up, you know, they don't move, whatever. They come out, depending on which drug you use to put them in that state, they've still got a little bit of drug on board when they come out. That determines what state of mind they're in. I've you know worked with veterans, you know, like uh, Marine Corps colonels, and they're like, "Yep, I'm here to have my finish up today." <laughs> you know, they're like that. You know, and then afterwards they're like, "Hi, Doctor Arlene, thank you so much. Thank you. I just really I didn't tell you how much you know. Did I ever tell you you have the most amazing brown eyes?" <laughs> You know, Colonel from the ring, rings is like, you know, hitting on me or what? Right. <laughs> Hello, ladies and stuff. I just want to give you a kiss, you know. And it's like Dipper Van, they, they used yeah. to call it mother's milk and a lot of other slang terms. But uh, it's there's a lot of potential inside right. of each person mm -hmm. that typically we don't go down into that part of ourselves because yeah. maybe we don't feel we have permission in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's such a great, great, great description. I completely appreciate you uh really talking about that you know these substance that we put inside of us just triggers our own neurochemistry i mean it's it's a great way of describing it uh dr leaf i just want to say uh, thank you so much for your time uh oh can i pop one more thing yeah yeah can I pop one sure. more thing it's one more thing quick. yeah so if all of these neurotransmitters this whole these neurochemical spaces are available mm -hmm. to everybody mm -hmm. And that psychotropics can shift people. That's what psychotropic means. It means tropic means to turn mm -hmm. the psycho, the mind. It turns to a different perspective, a different angle, a different perspective on the world. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, consider that the most commonly consumed psychotropics in the world are caffeine and mm -hmm. nicotine. Mm -hmm. So what would the world be like 
if we had a caffeine holiday or a caffeine <laughs> and nicotine holiday. I'm not talking about withdrawals and all that. I know people are addicted. But right. just think, that drug puts people in a certain state. Yep. It doesn't make them more friendly. Mm-hmm. Okay, It doesn't make them violent necessarily, but it doesn't make them more friendly. If we just took people down just to basic air and water state, you know, as opposed to all these substances, even without the cannabis, the whole world would probably change just by subtracting nicotine. If we lived in a world where the go-to psychotropic was cannabis, you know, or kava instead of nicotine and caffeine, wow, the whole world would be different. Of course, all the caffeine people say, yeah, you wouldn't get the work done. <laughs> Kava and cannabis. Why we'd all be sitting on a beach like a bunch of, you know, Pacific Islanders. And I'm, like, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's a, a plenty of other herbs that we can uh, take that can give us that stimulant. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's just to realize that what we think reality is and what we think humanity and culture yeah. and world events and all that, there's a lot of these little factors stimulating people. Yep. And when you have 90% of the population consuming psychotropics every day, without thinking about it, without monitoring their own dosages, without optimizing it, then that's, that's, that's not, it's not yeah. natural, if you will. It, you know, that's the rats in the experimental cage. Where are the control group? Yep. You know, where is that control group of people that aren't using any of those drugs? So anyway, so it's, it's, it's super fascinating to me, and I really appreciate you having me on the show. I thought- yeah, no, thank you. I mean, you, you definitely blew uh, some minds, uh, so I really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thank you as always. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll uh, love to have you back on and uh, talk about uh, personalized wellness at some point in a, in a little more detail. So, sure, uh, sounds great. great. Thank you so Everything much for your time. Is personal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right, take care. All the best. All right, Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.